Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. Hello, it's Anita here and welcome to this month's podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Simon Proctor, who is Director of Music Services, Education Research and Public Affairs for Nordoff Robbins, the National Music Therapy Charity. You may know Nordoff Robbins because of famous supporters like Niall Rogers, Sting, Ricky from Kaiser Chiefs and many others, as well as fundraising events given by people like the Premier Football League and the Music Industry Trusts Awards. So welcome Simon and thank you very much for being here today. It's really lovely to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. You're really welcome. So before I go on to asking you about music therapy and Nordoff Robbins, um, I'm always interested to know how people find their passion and motivation. So how did you end up doing what you do today and why is it so important to you? Well, I think I grew up surrounded by music. My dad was an amateur singer and violinist. He would deny being a violinist, but he certainly in choral societies. Um, and there was always music on that he was singing. And I think it's no coincidence I've turned into a music therapist and my sister's turned into a music teacher. There was always music around. And I learnt, I wanted to learn the violin, I think following off my dad, but he said he'd never quite got the hang of playing the violin because you couldn't see where the notes were. So he got me to learn piano first. And then I learned the violin. Um, so I had music lessons. I enjoyed playing in orchestras and later on in bands at school and things like that. I did a music degree. Actually, before I went to university, I remember I, I used to help run a kind of youth camp in the summer. And I stumbled across a book in a book, secondhand bookshop in Arundel by Nordafon Robbins called Therapy and Music for Handicapped Children, which looks terribly old-fashioned now. It's old black and pictures from the 1960s and it's quite off-putting in a way but once I started reading the kind of stories of how they were engaging these children in the making of music and really treating them as fellow musicians I was really hooked by it and that's what specifically ignited my interest in music therapy. Having done a degree I was then thinking what on earth I'd do after a music degree and I thought about music therapy and I went to an open day actually at the Guildhall in London. And in those days, you had to be 26 to train as a music therapist. Um, so they told me to go away and lie on a beach. Um, <laughs> so I didn't lie on a beach, but I did go away. Um, I lived in Poland for a few years and there I came across um, a very different kind of music therapy for what we have here. So it's, um, I came across a physiotherapist who'd done some training in using recorded music to help children do kind of boring and repetitive exercises over and over again. Um, and I got quite interested in that and started getting involved doing live music with them. And in the end, I thought, hmm, maybe I could train as a music therapist. And I came back to Britain to train and I trained at Nordic Robbins. And I've had at least one foot in Nordic Robbins ever since, basically. What a lovely story that you actually sort of happened upon music therapy by just finding a book. It wasn't that you saw, saw anybody do yeah. it before then. That's, no, that's amazing. No. I know definitions are a really hot potato, um, but <laughs> do you try to give listeners a simple definition of music therapy, what it is or what it, what it involves? Um, gosh. <laughs> 
So there are competing definitions around. So um, AMTA, which is the American Music Therapy Association, they have a big definition on their website, which is, you know, to do with a kind of planned and strategic use of musical interventions, da 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 da, da. And there are, other, there are other definitions around too. But I suppose in the UK, everyone gets very kind of cautious when you ask this because it's... Um, regulated and so actually to be a music therapist you have to do one of the trainings that's approved by the health and care professions council those trainings have to adhere to their standards of education and training and deliver their standards of proficiency etc etc so in a sense that's one kind of definition of it but i would i suppose i'd go for a more kind of practical common sense definition and i think music therapists essentially are trained to engage other people in music making in a whole range of ways that in some way or other are intended to make life as good as it can be or to help people realise their potential or to help people live as well as they can in difficult circumstances. I think there's something kind of strategic and informed about it so people have some idea of why they're doing what they're doing and how that is relevant to the person they're working with. That's a really vague definition. No, I think that's really great, because I think that's something that's quite straightforward, but people can remember as well. So thank you for that. And Nordoff Robbins, obviously, is quite a major charity in the music therapy sector. How does Nordoff Robbins do music therapy? Is it any different from, say, a kind of private or independent music therapist? Yeah. Yeah. So organisationally, we tend to work... So we deliver music therapy in basically three ways. So we have some centres. This is a small part of our work, really. It's probably the best known. So where I am now, we're at the London Centre of North Robbins, which is our national headquarters. But it's also a place where people come for music therapy. And so some schools bring children here, some parents bring their children, some adults self-refer. You get groups coming from age concern and organisations like that. And there are other smaller kind of mirrorings of this. So we have one in Croydon. We rent church hall space in Manchester. We have a small one in South Wales. We have one in Newcastle, a new dedicated centre, thanks to the Graham Wiley Foundation there. And we have centres in Glasgow and Edinburgh as well. So those are places people can directly access our services for free. And then the bulk of our work, however, is done in partnership with other organisations. So that's usually us providing music therapy within a context where people already are, so they don't need to come to us. Quite a lot of schools, mostly in special education, quite a lot of care homes, so largely with people with dementia, um, neuro rehab settings, so people who've had strokes and head injuries and are now in kind of residential care. And hospices is an increasing part of our work as well. So it's quite varied. Um, but usually those places will bring us in so that we're part of their service. It has the disadvantage, of course, that we're only available to the people within their service. But it does mean that people within their service have a really ready access to us. And they're not paying for that personally within the service. The service will buy us in um, for a subsidised rate. Um, and then finally, this is a small area we're doing at the moment, what we call community open access, which is where it's somewhere between the two, really, where we're working with organisations and in lieu of them paying us anything for our service, they open up their premises to allow other people to access our services as well. So that's a kind of win-win on both sides. So people are increasing their reach uh, and we're able to access more people. 
Uh, brilliant. Okay, so it sounds similar to the model of lot, a lot of um, community music organisations as well. Yeah, not dissimilar. Yeah. Certain level of commissioning, certain level of um, working partnership, certain level of... Yeah, we don't, we don't do formal commissioning as such. Um, so what we tend to do is um, we'll work with individual schools, for example, and persuade them mostly through their own experience of our work that we would contribute something to their school. And what we don't do is we kind of sell a package of therapy for a particular child, for example. We go and we provide a service to the school, um, oh, right. thinking with the school about what would be the most useful way of using the therapist's time. And typically that would be working with some individual children some groups and then maybe some whole school things or whatever um, it really depends on the setting and i guess that's all dependent on what budget they say that they have available for that work and then you work around that in terms of how much time you offer etc et absolutely so we normally do a day a week in the place uh, there are some places that have two or three days a week because that, that's something they've chosen to prioritize but we, we don't work in less than a day in a place generally all oh, right okay that makes sense so Touching on community music, it Ooh. seems that, that more musicians from both the community music sector and, and even sometimes sort of freelance music tutors from the former music education sector are kind of being commissioned to work with young people, particularly around well-being yeah. and mental health benefits that music can bring so they're kind of stepping into your territory more and more um, mm. and I have a question related to that from Alex Looper who's who's both a community musician and a music therapist um, mm. from Wiltshire England who asked on LinkedIn I'd be interested to know what Simon thinks about the current intersection between music therapy and community music as the idea of music therapy is becoming broader in some ways and community music is becoming more robust in terms of its evidencing and the acknowledgement of personal, social and emotional outcomes. So, I mean, basically sort of asking what your thoughts are on this kind of coming together in a sense of community music and music therapy. And I know there's also something in the sector that is actually called community music therapy. Yeah. Well, I think the division is something of an artificial one, to be honest. I mean, I think... Um, if you look in other countries, like Scandinavian countries, for example, they're, they're often quite puzzled when they look at the UK and they look at very separate community music and music therapy professions and traditions. I can see why it's in the interests of us as professionals sometimes to build those definitions and those professional walls. I'm not sure that they're always in the best interest of the people we're working with. And they're certainly not in the best interest of kind of sharing experience and insight that could benefit people in the long run. So my view would tend to be that both community music and music therapy are essentially musicians working with people in the hope that they're benefiting them in some way. And, you know, as Alex says, increasingly trying to evidence that benefit. I can see that they've grown in slightly different directions because of um, settings. So it used to be that music therapists would be more likely to be found in a medical setting, for example. Mm. Uh, musicians might be more found in a community labeled environment but actually I think even that's breaking down a bit now and I think there are tradi different traditions of training thinking about what skills you need to have what language you need to talk about the work what theories you draw on when you're talking about and doing the work um, but I think actually they're a lot closer than most people are comfortable admitting <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I, I think it would, you know, I'd probably upset most community musicians, most music therapists by saying that. 
<laughs> Sorry, as you say, the community music therapy thing, I think arose about 15 years ago, something like that. And it arose largely from music therapists saying, you know what, we're actually doing a wider range of work than we tend to talk about because we're constrained in our talking about it by professional notions of what we should and shouldn't be doing. And actually that doesn't necessarily correspond to the needs of the people or the communities that we're working with. Um, so music therapists often do performative things. Um, and I think one of the definitions that often is used to divide community music and music therapy is this idea that music therapy is private and doesn't get kind of broadcast in any way or shared with the world. Whereas actually lots of music therapists have been working with people to put on plays or to do band performances or whatever it is in ways that maybe they felt a bit constrained about talking in a music therapy environment. And I suppose the other thing is that lots of community musicians are also music therapists and vice versa. So there's a natural kind of coming, kind of cross-fertilisation and recognition of the common. And I think the early music therapists, you know, people like Norton Robbins and even Mary Priestley, who's sometimes seen as, you know, the most psychoanalytic of British music therapists, actually their early work was really pragmatic. Mary Priestley talks about turning up to the hospital ward with a basket of instruments and seeing what needs to be done. I mean, you don't get much more practical than that. So I think people have specialised in order to have status over the years. And actually, I think we're at a really interesting point now where people are recognising how much they have in common. Some differences as well. <clears throat> and I wouldn't want the kind of distinctiveness of community music or music therapy necessarily to be lost. But I do think that it's silly to deny that we have so much in common. Absolutely. And it would be great to sort of see more um, sharing of learning and sharing of advocacy, mm. which I'll come on to sort of later in our chat. But yeah, it Absolutely. seems to make sense, doesn't it? Um, yeah. So talking about community music becoming more robust and more evidence mm. and there's a lot more pressure on music to kind of prove its its worth constantly mm. how does Nordoff robbins evaluate the impact you're making so uh, this is a very timely question we're going through all this again at the moment um, so historically what we've done is for each place where we provide music therapy we try to capture something of the impact within that place. So within a school, for example, we will ask people, we'll ask if we can ask the children in the school and they're able to tell us, then we will try and get their feedback on what's going on. But we'll also talk to uh, staff and we'll talk to parents and we'll talk to management of the school. And it's not just about the impact it has on, you know, Johnny's seizures or anything like that. Um, that's important. So the individual level impact is important, but also the kind of institutional level impact. So what difference does it make that music therapy is going on on a Tuesday? What difference does it make to class three that they have a music therapist coming in for half an hour on a Thursday morning? Those kinds of things are important. Unfortunately, that's quite complicated. And if you also add to that the fact we work in many different kinds of places, so a school is a very different environment from a, a dementia care home or from a neuro rehab setting or from a hospice. And so 
we have to really tailor that to each place. But what we have got is a set of kind of key questions that we use between the various partner organisations that we can then aggregate that data and come up with some numbers that we can make kind of justifiable claims to when we're doing fundraising. Ah, right. Okay. Because what I was going to say was that sounds like anecdotal evidence, which all of us know is that kind of most powerful, really. Um, And I was just wondering if you do any, and so obviously you've got a set of kind of questions that are relevant to all your different settings and ways of working. Um, Yes. Do you use anything that's sort of statistical that would be recognised by NHS or other commissioners i'm thinking particularly like for young people there's a questionnaire called the strengths and difficulties questionnaire yeah. which is commonly with mental health settings yeah. there's also the warwick edinburgh mental well-being scale all those yeah. type of things those tools do you do you use any any of those or anything that's sort of similar that gives more quantitative and comparable so we will in specific settings but we can't buy those across the board because our range of clients are so great yeah. So we do that across everyone we provide music therapy to, but we will do it within specific settings. Or if it's within an NHS trust, we could do it within settings within that trust, for example. But we can't roll it out to everyone we work with. And no. therefore, that means you can use a, a measure that's more suited to the particular setting. And also, we know when we go in, I mean, I'm particularly thinking of neuro rehab settings, for example. They're often very, very focused on functional improvement. And so we would tend to use a scale which they, you already use. So whatever's kind of acceptable there. And often they've had their own conversations, I think. They've had their OT staff and they have speech and language therapists who equally have to kind of slightly struggle with these scales sometimes. So we kind of joined their conversation about it. Yeah, it definitely is tricky, isn't it? And it definitely needs a mm. conversation around the data because often the data doesn't come back with a straightforward, yes, this works. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, we're almost always working in situations where people are having multiple inputs. So particularly in medical settings, it's all very well to do a kind of before, middle and after. But actually, people are going through their rehab process at the same time. Yeah. I can't honestly claim that any improvement is down to music therapy uniquely. So you, you have to kind of be thoughtful about how you catch the claims. I think often it's about the contribution you make to the multidisciplinary team rather than saying music therapy is the most amazing thing ever for rehabilitation. Yeah, absolutely. You have to be so careful about what we claim for music, don't we? I think we have that conversation continually in the music education sector and the community music sector. Mm. Um, It's a tricky one. I don't think we'll answer it in this conversation, but thank you for that. Um, And talking of that, so moving on from evaluation, because um, you mentioned to me that you're particularly focused on the craft of musical work with people and how this doesn't get thought about or taught because of all the desperation at the moment for us to prove our effectiveness grow our reach etc etc can you Mm. you talk me a little tell me a little bit more about that the crown yeah i mean i suppose there's such a focus because for you know perfectly understandable reasons people need to prove that what they do is effective um and that they're worth paying for of course and therefore we focus very much on saying we have this kind of impact, we can make this kind of claim, uh, we're value for money, etc. And sometimes I think we miss out the first step, which is saying this is what we can do. 
this is how we work to pe- with people, this is what we offer. Nordoff Robbins is unusual as a provider of music therapy services in, in that we also train music therapists. And much of my work has to do with the overseeing of the training and education side. So we have a, a master's training program, which is one of those I mentioned earlier, approved by the HCPC um, for training musicians through music therapists. And we have a PhD program as well, which is intended to help practitioners, not just music therapists actually, but anyone working musically with people to kind of think in a bit more critical way and a more kind of systemic way about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And especially in the master's course, you know, we're taking people in who are, who are good musicians, you know, they're skilled, they've done different kinds of training. It used to be very classical, it's not at all anymore. But we're bringing them in and spending two years getting them to really focus on thinking about what they're doing and learning practical skills for doing it. And it's those practical skills and their interface with the theory that I think sometimes gets a bit neglected. So people talk theory very readily but it doesn't mean that they quite know what to do when they're in a room with someone. And that's, that's true of all musical work, I think. I'm not just talking about music therapy. It's all very well to say music's amazing, and when you make music with people, amazing things happen. But how do you know what to do next? How do you know whether to... If someone's singing, how do you know whether to double the line that they're singing in your accompaniment? Or how do you know where to sing with them? How do you know whether to stop playing altogether and just listen to them? How are those decisions being made? And how do you know that your intentions translate into clients' experiences of what's going on? So that's what I mean by craft. Craft, I would say, also is shared. So it's not just the expert therapist or musician and the kind of naive client. It's absolutely that the client brings craft as well. So you can look at an improvisation going on between a community musician or a music therapist and someone they're working with, and actually some of the, the kind of, how would I put it, kind of sassy things people do to make the improvisation work, some of them come from the so-called trained professional, and some of them come from the person they're working with. And in a sense, that's really important because that's how we draw out people's innate um, resourcefulness and creativity, musicality and wellness, ultimately. And I think the drawing out of that is at the core of what we all do. But the thinking about how we do that tends to get a bit lost in all the need to demonstrate effectiveness. That's fantastic and so interesting and we could probably just spend the rest of our interview talking about that because I think that's really interesting because you covered so many things that I kind of want to pick up on but um, (laughs) that's another area that's so sort of common across music therapy and community music is that empowerment of the individual and it's Mm. the same as in good education is about drawing out not pushing in and not having Mm. a specialist uh, imposing the creativity, I mean, I guess, as with community musicians, music therapists are facilitators first, aren't they? Yeah. Facilitators yeah. for other people's creativity. Yeah, really fascinating. And that's why it's, it would be so great to see more conversations between music therapists and community musicians to build down into that craft that you're talking about. Mm. Okay, so moving on, I, I talked to a Dr. Anita Collins, the Australian music researcher mm-hmm. and educator last month about the need to be more intelligent about what, the way we use the information that we have to advocate for music and music mm-hmm. education. And I'm just sort of thinking actually that what we've just been talking about, you know, maybe there's a necessity for us to talk 
in more depth about the work and to help mm. our funders and audiences understand yeah. a little bit more about that. But I sort of wondered if there's a similar debate in music therapy about being more intelligent about the way we communicate and advocate for music. Are there any fundamental criteria that need to be in place for music therapy to have an impact and that you feel that we really need to be focusing on? Or? Um, well, I think we're quite lucky in music therapy in some ways because there is a range internationally of music therapy research going on. Um, so there are some real powerhouses of quantitative RCT-type work. So there's the GAMUT, which is the Greek head. Um, I've forgotten exactly what it stands for, but it's the Greek Academy of Music in Bergen. And they have a research unit dedicated to music therapy there. And they, they're led by people like Christian Gold. And they churn out uh, Cochrane reviews and RCTs. And they, they do a real service for music therapy the world over, publishing this stuff, which is very useful as evidence. So particularly in kind of medical settings, to go in with a Cochrane review and uh, RCTs looks very convincing. However, if you dig down into what those reviews are looking at, it might be music therapy that looks very different to local practice, for example. And so my experience is that not every setting needs the same kind of evidence or the same level of evidence. A long time ago here at North Robbins, we made a little publication about how high do you need to jump in terms of so, you know, you're going to, a, I don't know, to a, a local services manager in, in a community mental health system. They're probably not that worried about academic evidence for the effectiveness. They're more concerned whether people will actually turn up to this and whether they will sustain their engagement with it. So there are different kinds of evidence for different situations. And the other side of it is that the RCT stuff is necessarily quite individualistic, it tends to focus on improvements or lack of improvement in individual people in relation to specified symptoms, for example. Um, and so that's why there are you know, quite, quite solid bodies of evidence now around value music therapy for people with autism or people uh, with schizophrenia and things like that or with depression. What I think a lot of the people who want to use music therapy in their services are interested in is not just music therapy as a kind of medical, clinical intervention. They're more interested in the kind of what we call the ripple effects of music therapy. So. Uh, you may spend a day working in a school and work with five individual children and do a couple of groups or something. But actually, it's the kind of ripple effect beyond the session that people are often quite excited about. So, for example, there's a quite a well-known video on our website, it's been on social media a lot, of um, a young girl in a school in Yorkshire making music with her music therapist and they're kind of both sat at the keyboard. Ah, uh, yes, I've seen it, yeah. Yes, so this girl is kind of really directing the music therapist and really taking charge. And for her, that's unquestionably a very positive experience because she's someone who doesn't get to take control of other people very much at all because of her situation in life. However, the benefits go beyond her because the benefits are also for staff of the school who get to see her in a very different context. So this is not a child simply who needs care and lots of 
kind of physical attention. This is a child who can be creative and imaginative and surprising. It's important for her parents as well to be able to see that their child is really thriving given the right conditions. And so it's that kind of rippling out and hopefully it changes the way staff work with that child. This has been part of the articulation of community music therapy, the recognition that music therapy doesn't stay in its private box down the end of the corridor, preferably in a soundproofed room. Uh, but actually, there are real benefits to the fact that music leaks. It goes through, goes through walls. And of course, music has also to do with people's sense of identity and of community. So I know that having worked a lot in community mental health environments, people take the music and do something with it for themselves. So people start conversations around the music they love people start making kind of you know um, compilation cds for each other and things like that so we need to be careful i think not to fall too deeply into the music therapy as an individual intervention whole because the reality is even if we talk about it in that way that's not what actually happens Absolutely. That's really. I think I've gone some way from your question now. <laughs> no, no, but it's really important and really interesting. And I kind of like to ask you a little bit more about your your training, although we haven't intended to. But um, mm. just, I suppose, it's just asking for a reasonably quick answer to what could be a complex question. In your training, do you split up the training into? sort of areas of need or challenge so you mentioned autism um, mm. would you have a sort of strand of training that says this is what works for somebody on the autistic spectrum and this is what you would do in that moment with that person do, do you yeah I know what you mean I mean it's a really good question I suppose there are two answers to it first is because it's um, regulated by the HCPC they have a list of things that all of the approved courses must contain and specific teaching around things like autism is on that list so yes there are seminars which are specifically about music therapy for people with autism and within those uh, we would get music therapists to share their experiences of working with people with autism hopefully we'd be able to show some recordings of uh, music therapy with autism there's a lot of kind of classic historical work of people with autism as well and we'd also bring in perspectives of people with autism on music therapy so there are various people with, with autism who've kind of written and spoken about their experiences of music therapy and those are very useful too however it's not okay so you've got a person with autism in front of you this is what you do yeah. <laughs> it's much more i would say the court as a whole it's an attitude towards working musically with people so how do you make music with another person and how might that be useful or not for them what is it about being human that that makes us need musical companionship from another person and we all do Someone with autism is not is no less a complex all-round person than anybody else. It's simply that when you work with someone with autism, you need to have some awareness of what their particular challenges might be, what their particular kind of difficulties might be in terms of participating in music making, but also taking the sort of grasping the potential offerings of music. So why might it more be more difficult to join in a group improvisation for someone who's autistic? Why might it be more difficult for someone to 
write a song with you. But equally, why might it be really useful for someone to do that? So those are questions you'd ask in terms of everyone you ever work with, including people who don't come with ready-made labels. So it's kind of growing awareness and their sensitivities and their knowledge in relation to conditions, but also teaching them that this this extraordinary thing of making music with someone, it's a huge privilege and you have to work with each person as they come. That absolutely kind of breaks down those silos between any type of music work with people, doesn't it? What you've just said, mm. because if you're a music educator, if you're a community musician, if you're a music therapist, wouldn't wouldn't that be what you would be curious about and want to learn about and want to... I'm sure, I'm sure. On? So that's really interesting. I mean, can I just say, the, the, the other thing that people often assume in music therapy training is that you learn to do music and you learn to do therapy. That's another thing we try not to separate out, but certainly for us. You know, if you're thinking about autism and what it is to be autistic, then why would you not think about it musically? Because we're going to be working with people musically. Um, so I think, yes, of course, you need to know the stuff in the textbooks about it. And you need to learn from the experience of the lived experience of people with autism. But you also need to think, how does this impact on making music with people? We don't do, we don't learn about therapy and learn about music and then send people out to try and put them together. We think that the therapy is in the making of music. You know, the kind of transformational experiences that people have happen when they're musicking together, whether that's, you know, improvising or writing songs together or planning a musical event together. That's where the therapy lies. That's really interesting. That's kind of busted a few myths in a few short sentences. Um, so I have some more questions from listeners now via LinkedIn. Yep. Um, the first two are from Simon Glenister of Noise Solution. They're a social enterprise in Barry St. Evans, England. Um, and they deliver one-to-one music mentoring programs with people facing challenging circumstances. So they're kind of, they're not, they don't describe themselves as a community music organisation, but I guess mm. they are. And they are working very definitely in a sector where music therapists are traditionally working and he asked yeah. how do we better bridge mentoring and therapy communications and encourage cross-referral and also retain community <clears throat> so that's his first question yeah um well i think it's important that we do i think certainly for as nord robbins we're, we're always trying to link people on we can't work with people unendingly and for we know that for a lot of the people we work with and i'm thinking particularly of my own work in um, mental health services people often tell me that you know i love music as a teenager i learned to play the guitar but when i when i got ill i stopped all of that and not only did I stop it, but I lost contact with all the people who I used to do it with. So people have kind of lost contact with music as part of becoming mentally ill. And part of what we can do is kind of reignite that, that kind of uh, recognition that music has something to offer me and that I can get something out of making music or listening to music or singing songs or being in a band or joining a choir, whatever it is. And therefore, part of our responsibility, and it's a very formal one in inpatient services because you have to do kind of discharge planning, uh, but it's still a responsibility outside of that, I think, is to help people think about how they're going to sustain this. So they rediscover music. And it's fine if they're coming to you to do the music or you're facilitating something on their ward. But then what after that? So very often we know in mental health services, people get discharged. They suddenly lack the support 
they lack the motivation to keep taking the medication. They stop taking the medication, they become socially isolated and they get readmitted to hospital. So part of what we can do is to help people sustain their musical being, but it has to be done in a way that makes sense for them. So for everyone, it can be something different. So for some people, it might be going on a course that teaches you how to be a DJ, for example. And other people, it might be joining a choir or learning to play the guitar. For some people, I can think of one particular person for whom it was actually being encouraged to teach guitar to other people, for example. So he was a guitarist, quite an able guitarist, but lacked the kind of conviction that he would have anything to offer to anyone else. And it was highly motivating for him that he was supported in teaching guitar through a community project to other people, who, of course, also themselves benefit from that. So I think we're always on the lookout for what we call musical pathways. So doctors talk about clinical pathways in and out of services, but we need musical pathways for people to go down when they're not in music therapy and when they're not in a kind of high input, intense provision situation like a hospital ward. So yeah, I've linked people up to lots of things. And actually, we're at the moment, we're trying to keep building, it's always a real challenge to do these things, but trying to keep building a directory of things that we can refer people on to because... As I say, we can't work with people forever. And the more sustainable community-based things there are for people out there, the better. Oh, that's really useful. So I guess the kind of takeaway from that is that if you're a community music organisation, try to look out for those music therapists or music therapy organisations in your local area and make sure they're aware that you're around because they potentially could refer. And same with music education organisations. And I guess an obvious contact point is through a music education hub. Absolutely. Takeaway from a music education hub is, you know, you might not think that music therapists are working in the same sector as you, but they actually, you know, you could create some links for the benefit of those young people that you're working with and that music therapists are working with. Yeah, absolutely. Music hubs are great for that. And also, um, if people are aware of local um, BAMPT groups, so BAMPT is the Music Therapy Association in the UK. They can kind of put people in touch with music therapists doing things in their area. And likewise, Nord Robbins, our regional sort of heads of regions, are always really happy to find out what's going on locally if they're not aware already. So, yeah. Internet. <laughs> really useful. Thank you for that. Um, Simon's second question is How do we encourage the take up of music technology in therapy settings? There still appears to be a heavy focus on Western classical players progressing into therapeutic roles. Ooh, um, <laughs> that's interesting. So I think we, we actually have a piece of work going on at the moment about um, the use of technology in music therapy. Some of our therapists are very adept in the use of music technology, some aren't. It seems to me that music technology can be extremely useful in many situations. So I've already mentioned um, people in neuro rehab um, situations who often find themselves kind of paralyzed in particular ways. So depending on the nature of the brain injury, they may not be able to speak. They may not be able to use one side of their body. They might be more globally affected than that but things like you know adaptive technology ipad apps various kinds of stuff that is moving quite quickly at the moment can be extremely useful in helping people to overcome physical barriers to participation the other way in which i found technology to be very useful is as i said before often our ability to engage people and sustain that engagement is what we're really valued for and i think for some groups of people, 
technology can be really useful. I'm, I'm going to sound really old now, but I remember about, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago when Fruity Loops was a new thing. Oh, yeah. I remember buying like computer music magazines to get the discs for Fruity Loops. And then um, we'd use them at the Community Mental Health Centre to, to engage people who otherwise would say, oh, I'm not going to do therapy. But if it was kind of organised, collaborative work using computers to make music and in a way that doesn't need you know, any knowledge of music notation or anything like that, actually that was highly engaging. And the process was, I would say, just as challenging and just as kind of aesthetically rewarding as any kind of improvisation using drums and clarinets or whatever. Um, And so that taught me very early on that technology is extremely useful for engaging people in that way. The only caveat I'd have about technology is that somehow as a musician, I know that at the heart of what I do is the kind of extraordinary meeting of one person with another in music. So rather than just the kind of jamming along, when you have those moments of extreme kind of intimacy in music therapy, I really don't want anything to get in the way. And very often those are done vocally or just working with people's breathing or something like that. So there's a real place in music therapy for the very simple, the very personal and the very kind of relational and I am nervous slightly of technology getting in the way of that. But in almost every other way, it has a huge amount to offer. Ah, right. Okay. That's really interesting. I'd love to get you and Simon both on the podcast and perhaps somebody from mm. the organization that I've worked with, the music works who use technology really effectively with yeah. young people, um, particularly mentoring young people. So yeah, maybe we should do that as a another podcast in a little while. Um, so I know we're running short of time and I've got a couple of questions from another personal uh, follower on, on LinkedIn, who is Scott Monks, the chief executive at Rocksteady Music School. So he's mm-hmm. posed a couple of questions. So I'm going to ask them and then I'm going to ask you to choose one of them to answer if that's all right so the first question is that your Nordoff Robbins research work has contributed a lot to the greater understanding we have about the positive impact that music can have on well-being what research projects are you currently working on and what theories are they aiming to prove or disprove and then the second question is we see firsthand the transformation impact that music can have on children in challenging circumstances this for me for him really brings alive the importance of making sure no child is left behind what individual impact stories can you share with us um, okay so the, qu- the second question, I think there are lots of case studies on, like on the Nord Fromans website and on other websites, and I think they can probably say more with the, the reality of it than I can in word. In terms of the research projects we're doing here at the moment, the big one we're engaged with, with which is heading towards completion at the moment, is an ethnographic study of how music therapy contributes to life in schools so rather than measuring the impact of anything we're sending researchers in to spend a day in a school when there's a music therapist there and they visit repeatedly they don't just go once well the idea is not to assess the work as such but to observe the interactions that go on 
in music therapy, but also around music therapy and how people respond, not necessarily people in sessions, but people around the children who are going to sessions, how they respond to the presence of music therapy and how it impacts on the days of the other people in the schools. So I think the North Robin, North Robins, our approach to music therapy is a very holistic one. So it's, it's very much, we call it music centered or sometimes person centered at music focused, but you know, it's about, there's a real concern for what's actually happening, not slapping theory onto it and fantasizing about what's happening, but really attending to what's happening here and now. And our research tradition is very like that. So people like Gary Ansdell, Mercedes Pavlitsevich, particularly, those are the two kind of big names in this country who've really contributed to this. And further afield, people like Ken Egan and Colin Lee, I think, um, have really contributed to this idea that in researching things, yes, okay, we do need to do something of responding to the demand for evidence, etc. But really at the heart of things, there needs to be a kind of what they call gentle empiricism. So it's this kind of idea from Goethe, really, of you know, don't, don't mess with the thing you want to learn about. Just go and observe and learn and feel and be part of it. And in terms of contemporary research, that links up very much with um, ethnography um, and the kind of practices that are common within, uh, I suppose, social anthropology and sociology. So actually, my own background academically is in sociology of music. We bring, both I and the head of research here, bring a, um, a kind of convincedness about the, the importance of attending to little things that are going on around. The other project I'd mention is Owen Coggins, who's one of our researchers here, is a very established researcher in metal music. Um, he's doing a very interesting project on the kind of interactions between metal and music therapy. Um, which a lot of people are surprised by because they assume that music therapy would be all terribly kind of tuneful and lovely, which often isn't. Um, and so he's thinking about how therapists and clients are kind of influenced by metal and what aspects of metal are observable in music therapy. I think it's quite an exciting project. Those both sound really fascinating and um, both equally fascinating in different ways. And that uh, sort of ethnographic approach to research is so refreshing because we don't get to do that, I think, in music education or community music. Mm. That whole thing about, you know, unintended outcomes and just looking at what's happening. It, would that be published on your website when it's happening? Uh, it will be. Um, Brilliant. Yes, it'll be. I mean, they'll, we'll have, I hope we'll have peer referee journal articles coming out of it. Um, but we'll certainly put links on the websites to those things. Yeah, we'll keep a lookout for that. Um, so finally, can you give us three practical pieces of advice for people wanting to learn more from music therapy and form closer advocacy links with the music therapy sector? So yeah. How do we basically avoid working silos? We've covered a lot of this already, to be honest. So, it's, so how do we advise yeah. on the power of kind of collective advocacy and learning? Okay, I'm gonna, again, I'm going to sound really old-fashioned. I, I think it, there's value in reading stuff. <laughs> yes. So there's a great website called Voices, www.voices.no for Norway. And it's a genuinely international journal um, around music therapy, but it prioritizes issues of social justice. And so it's, it's the most, in my experience, it's the most genuinely open in its view of what music therapy is uh, of any journal. And it's totally free to access as well. And they welcome contributions from people in all sorts of situations, doing all sorts of musical work with people. I think it's a real beacon. Um, so I find it very exciting reading that and it opens my eyes to some of the kind of cross-fertilization that's already going on in different parts of the world. So I'd really recommend Voices. 
In terms of books, I'd recommend Music for Life by Gary Anstel. It's about 20 years old now, but it's lovely stories of various people's work um, with audio recordings, which you can download from the internet to go with it as well. And then that book, Community Music Therapy, which we mentioned the idea of community music therapy, it was kind of distilled into a book of chapters by various people, edited by Gary Anstel and Mercedes Pavitsevich. So reading is one. I'd encourage any musician working with people, whether they call it community music or music and health work or whatever, I'd really encourage them to go and talk to music therapists, meet music therapists, um, get in touch with a local BAMPT association group. Most music therapists record their work and, you know, if they have the relevant consent from the people they work with, then they can usually share some of those recordings and really explain the work they're doing. And I think you get much more out of seeing work, hearing about it, than you do from just hearing someone talk about it. And I think my experience, I mean, you used to said at the beginning about all these, um, you know, rock stars who get involved with Nord Robbins. The reason they get involved is because when they see the work happening in front of them, they get it because it's musicianly work. And sometimes all the dressing up of things in complicated jargon and theory from other disciplines gets in the way. And I would recommend any musician to go and see music therapy if they can, or talk to a music therapist at least. I suppose the third thing would be um, there are lots of opportunities, Nordic Robbins runs some and other organisations too, to go on like a little introductory course about music therapy. Uh, we certainly run them in London and in Wales and in Manchester and in Newcastle and in Scotland as, as well. Um, little like six-week courses where it's just one evening a week and people will do some improvising um, and they'll get to see music therapists present recordings of their work and talk them through it and think about how music therapy is relevant to different client groups. Some people do those as a kind of way of deciding whether they want to train as a music therapist but they're really there for anyone who wants to just get some kind of understanding of music therapy which goes beyond what you could read in a book so you can find out details of those on the north Rums website most of the other trainings in the uk also offer some kind of short course as well like that i didn't realize that that's absolutely brilliant that's really really helpful advice we have to finish here unfortunately i could talk to you all day it's been absolutely <laughs> fascinating a real real pleasure to talk to you simon so thank you so much for coming on the show thank you very much um if you as a listener want to read more about Nordoff robbins and simon's blogs about music therapy i'll share the link to those in the show notes and also all the various tips and links that that simon's mentioned through the show they'll be in the show notes um thank you ever so much for listening and have a really great week That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education Wellbeing podcast and make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and have a great week. <laughs>